Welcome to a bonus episode of the Juicebox Podcast. This one's live. I've got little quotes around the word live. Live from the American Diabetes Association's 76th Annual Scientific Session. Is that an alliteration? 76th Scientific Sessions? I think it is. So I had this really cool opportunity to talk to Thomas Walker from Dexcom. Thomas is presenting this weekend, um, June 11th and 12th in that range, at the American Diabetes Association's 76th Annual Scientific Sessions. He's presenting two papers. Both of them, I thought, had a lot to do with what we talk about here on the podcast, and so I thought it would be interesting to have him give the information here on the podcast, because I know you can't all be at the ADA. So, short episode, no ads, just um, Thomas talking about two different papers, 872P, patient data from real-time CGM suggests use of threshold alerts impacts glycemic control, which I'm usually telling you, like, hey, set your levels differently and give yourself a chance to respond. And the other one, 874P, clinical use of CGM results in reducing frequency of BGM or blood glucose monitoring. So if you have a glucose monitor, you probably don't have to test as much. And uh, Thomas is a real good guy. He puts it in real plain language. It's easy to understand. It's a short episode. I think you're going to like it. So quote unquote live from the ADA, here's Thomas Walker from Dexcom. Before we start, I want to ask you, I, I noticed you're a CDE, but you're also a DNP. Now, I have a DNP also, but it's from middle school because I couldn't climb the rope in the President's Physical Fitness Challenge. It was a, it was a, it was a, didn't, it was a do not uh, participate. Uh, did not participate, I believe. What, what does your stand for exactly? Yeah, sure. So, you know, let me just say who I am. Go ahead. So, I'm, a, I'm the Director of Clinical Projects with Dexcom. My background is as a clinician, I'm a nurse practitioner. The DNP stands for a Doctorate of Nursing Practice. The APRN sort of stands for Advanced Practitioner of Registered Nursing. Um, <clears throat> I have a background in clinical care, primarily in diabetes management as a nurse practitioner for about 17 years. I had a busy clinical practice. I joined Dexcom about two years ago as the Director of Clinical Projects. <clears throat> Could so my you work here... I'm were, sorry. Were you able to get up the rope in middle school? Just um, I was not yeah, actually I either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I was uh, so I joined as the uh, as the director of clinical projects here. My job is um, it, it's a little it's a, I sometimes tell people it's a little hard to define. Uh, I, I support our work in the artificial pancreas world. Um, I support a lot of investigator initiated clinical studies. Um, I have my fingers in some of it are some of our advanced project management. Um, so I, I kind of do a lot of things. One of my claims to fame is in 2006, I purchased the first CGM units in Nevada for my clinical practice. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, then you were yeah. there at the very beginning. So you... I was, and I've been a huge supporter from day one. As I am think I. That they, you know, I, and I think it's um, just to ramble for a minute. It, I, 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 it's troubling to me that <clears throat> 10 years into this technology being available, and we just had our 10th anniversary for commercial availability of Dexcom, even in the best centers in the country, we're only seeing about 16% uptake of CGM and people who would benefit from it. And that, that's just, it's just, I just, I, I mean, I, 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 that's just a huge challenge for all of us. Yeah. I was just speaking to someone the other day who said that they asked their endo, their child's endo about it. And the endo said, oh, you don't want that. It'll just beep all the time. And I was like, "Yeah, to let you know when your blood sugar's out." Okay, never mind. And you, you know, like, but how could how could how could that be the the advice of the clinician, right? Like, but nevertheless, um, 
I don't exactly, I, this was sort of my idea and yet I don't exactly know what my idea is. So I don't know if you want to, uh, just kind of loosely talk about the two topics or if you want to present it straight, I, I, I would think it might be more fun if we just talked about it. As I understand it, the two topics that you can talk about today uh, are both things that as a person whose child uses Dexcom, I, I, I don't want to say that you didn't need to do this research, but if you would have called me, I definitely would have agreed <laughs> with you. Um, and the first one, if you're able to talk about the threshold alerts and the impact they have on control, this is something I constantly just yesterday told somebody on the phone, please move your high threshold down because <sighs> once you're at 300, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> so, you know, you can't, you, can't, you can't stop a high once you're high. You can stop a high when you know it's coming. But what does your research tell you about the thresholds and where you set? Sure. So if we talk about that, so that's poster 872 that's being presented at ADA. Mm -hmm. So what this poster really did was it, it, it essentially asked the question look, that, look, we know that the benefits of CGM and diabetes management are actually well known. And one of the things that patients like is the ability to set user-defined threshold alerts and alarms. The question is, is, does how patients set these alarms really have an impact on how well they do? Now, as you pointed out in your case, this seems like kind of an intuitive question. It's like, well, of course it would. But nobody had really looked at this that closely. So what we did was we, we, we took our database, which is all anonymized, it's all patient de-identified. Right. So I have no idea who these patients were. And we took several thousand patients and collected about 17 million data points. Wow. <clears throat> and then we looked at this to see how patients were setting their alarms. So one of the things we found was that um, about 92% of patients choose to set their alarms. They don't Which, go with what just comes preset. preset. No, they don't turn them off. They, they remember, patients have the option to, to disable the alarms except for the hypoglycemic alarm on the Dexcom system, which has the hard stop at 55 milligrams per deciliter, which cannot be turned off. So, But about 92% of patients will either leave them on or choose to set them at a different level. Okay. So about like something like 78% chose a low glucose alert at 80 or lower. And 77% chose a high glucose alert at 200 or higher. So the question then is, well, do, if they set their alerts lower, do they have a different average glucose than the patients who set their alerts higher? And the answer was yes, that um, if you set your glucose uh, alerts, your low glucose alert at less than 80, your mean glucose is 150 compared to people who set their low glucose alerts at higher than 80 and their mean glucose was 179. That is really interesting. So it, it, it is because it really shows that patients are benefiting from this information. The other thing that came up was, does it matter how often patients look at the data? So one of the things that we could tell from this anonymized data set was how often you press the button and look at your alarm, or, or, or excuse me, or look at your CGM device. How often do you look at the device and actually get feedback from it? Because, you know, every time you press it, you can see where your glucose is, you can see what direction it's going, you can see how fast the rate of change is. And in my opinion, you can also really importantly benefit from the tracing, seeing where I've been and where I'm going. Mm -hmm. So we saw that people who interact with their screen less than 16 times a day, their glucose was statistically higher, significantly higher, but P was less than 0.001, than people who interact with it more than 36 times a day. 
So the mean glucose, if you only interact 16 times a day or less, was 173, but the mean glucose, if you interact more than 36, was 157. So patients were also benefiting from this ability to interact with the receiver, to be able to see the glucose data and incorporate that into their decision-making. Can, can I stop you for a second? Can you extrapolate that? Like, do you know why that is, or can you guess as why that is? You know, we, we don't know why that is. Um, speaking just from the data, I can't tell you why that is. Okay. From a clinical standpoint, and having taken care of patients for many years, my personal belief is that when they're interacting with it more, they're more aware of the glucose, the direction, the rate of change, the trending, and they're making decisions to improve their management based on that. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So. It really, it really does. I mean, there's the, you can. I've started recently trying to think about the line more the way I imagine an, an artificial pancreas would think about it. So sometimes when I see it bending even just the slightest bit, I'll adjust a, a temp basal rate, for example, and and I'm having a lot of luck with that. Of you know keeping. You know, my daughter's low. We just moved it. It used to be at 75. I've moved it to 70. And we moved her high threshold to 130. So you can react before things get out of hand and, and then get them back easier. The, the less insulin you need to stop what's happening uh, or the less carbs you need to stop what's happening, to me, it seems like there's a less chance for, you know, getting on the roller coaster and being high and low. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's working out really well for me. I'm, I'm excited that you're that you guys are seeing the same thing and, and, and getting that information out in the world. So what do, what do we take from this? So what do we take from this is that patients really benefit from setting alarms that are meaningful to them and by interacting with their receivers. If you wear the CGM and you interact with the data, it seems to make a difference in how well your control is. That's the takeaway. Excellent. And again, well, well, we can look at this and go, well, that's kind of an intuitive thought. It's like, yes, but it's nice to be able to pull a big data set. I mean, 17 million data points and look at this data set and say, this is really making a difference. And we can see that when people interact with the data, they benefit from it, even though I suspect if we go and talk to them, they may not be able to quantify exactly why they're benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. So the, one of the other interesting things we found was that the younger subjects, so people less than eight, you know, uh, 49 years and younger, seem to interact with their devices more than people over the age of 50, which um, I, I think kind of makes sense. We, we, live in a, we live in a smartphone culture now. It's like, you know, the only way to get the cell phone out of my daughter's hand is, you know, is, is to physically rip it out. I'm just excited that I'm in the, in the younger section. When you, said, when you said the younger section, I'm like, oh, I hope, it's, I hope, it's, I hope it includes my age. Um, so can I ask you, and this would be aside from the data, but like clinically speaking, um, do you think there's a benefit in being able to set multiple thresholds depending on the time of day? You know, this is something we've looked at uh, a lot, and it's something that we've had uh, numerous patients have discussed it with us, and we've actually we've talked to some people about this. I think that some people benefit from this, and I'm not sure that other people do. We know that you know, the nice thing about the hypoglycemic alarms and the hyperglycemic alarms is that that protection when you're maybe less able to pay attention to it, such as sleeping, or if you're really busy at work. Um, does, does the ability to set it for different times of day make a difference? No one's been able to show that in a paper yet, but we, we've had the same discussions ourselves. Yeah. So. I'm interested because I, I know I'm just thinking last night, 
if I could have, you know, during the day walking around, it's it's set at 70. Um, but if I could have had it kind of magically switch over to, say, 85 when she went to sleep, I would have probably gotten another 60 or 80 minutes worth of sleep last night. So Sure, yeah, sure. And, th- and this, is, this is something that we're, we're actually looking at doing it's something we've considered and it it I, I i couldn't tell you you'll see it in the next generation or anything like that but it is something we are aware of and we've heard requests from patients for this yeah that's so. just nice to hear it's being thought of uh did i miss anything with this or do you can we move to the next subject no we can move to the next one i mean i, just, I, <clears throat> I think that's a fun poster just because it really shows what we always what always we've thought was gee if patients interact with them more they'll do better yeah, no, so, for certain. And this next one's going to prove out uh, something that's been going on in my life for a very long time that, you know, I think that people in general don't want to talk about because you get scared that you're going to lose your, your test strips from your insurance if you, if you speak out loud about it. But uh, the frequency of blood glucose checks when you're using CGM, does that change? So, yeah. So the clinical use of CGM, when we look at randomized clinical trials – does result in reduced frequency of blood glucose meter use. Now, I want to say that I am not advocating an off-label use of Dexcom clinical or Dexcom continuous glucose monitoring. And we know that the new CGM technologies are showing significant improvements in performance and error reduction, and we're approaching accuracy seen with traditional blood glucose meters. For sure. Yeah. But there have been no randomized clinical trials looking at using CGM as a replacement for finger sticks. Now, what we did for this paper was we looked at 11 randomized clinical trials using CGM as the intervention. So you have the control group and the intervention group, and the intervention group got access to continuous glucose monitoring. Mm -hmm. And when we looked at those studies, five of them actually reported the amount of test strip use from baseline when the patients were doing their run-in, and then to the end when they were had been using continuous glucose monitoring for maybe three months, maybe six months, maybe 12, depending on the study. And what we found was that five of them actually reported the changes in the self-monitoring of blood glucose strip use. And then we also grabbed one survey that was recently published by Dr. Chamberlain, where he talked to patients who were going to uh, transition from self-monitoring of blood glucose with a meter to continuous glucose monitoring, and he did a, did a bunch of baseline studies on them, and then followed up with them a year later, and specifically looked at those patients who were using their CGM almost full time, which we consider really basically 28 days a month, um, for the last year. So what we saw was that five of these trials reported decreases in their use of blood glucose monitoring strips. So, again, something that is widely reported anecdotally, but this was actually from randomized clinical trials. Now, two of them did not show a statistically significant reduction in the number of test strips that were used. But both of those studies only lasted for about three months. So they only had a three-month intervention period. When you looked at studies that lasted longer than three months, which was the other three, they all reported statistically significant reductions in the amount of test strip use, ranging between a reduction of 0.6 tests per day to more than a 50% reduction in test strip use. I would um, probably attribute that to having to see it and and have it work out for you a number of times over and over again before you could start believing the idea that I could stop doing something that my you know that I've been basically trained to do all these years I think you have to have that experience over and over and over again until you can kind of let go I, I that doesn't surprise me at all 
and that's really supported by these studies that reported that that's really supported by the studies that reported the change in SMBG use was that the clearest differentiator between those studies showing statistically significant reductions in SMBG was the duration of SCGM use. And then when we look at the uh, data published by Dr. Chamberlain, who had talked to patients before and after 12 months, he reported more than a 50% reduction in the amount of self-reported SMBG use. So this is something, again, it's been reported widely clinically. The number of anecdotal stories about this are overwhelming. But it was nice to see this data extracted from large randomized uh, clinical trials that have already been published. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I I feel like you know, there's even if it's just for someone to come out and say you're not crazy, what you're seeing and what's happening in your life is 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 true, and it's proving out over over large um you know sections of people. It it makes you feel better because I can tell you that there are times when you you know when you don't exactly do what your endos told you, and it, there's a stress level there, and then and you even though you know in your heart like this is working, this is fine, this is great, I shouldn't feel badly about this. There's still that little voice in the back of your head that, you know, kind of kind of picks away at you. I'm not supposed to be doing this, but but this is fantastic. So where does this where does this move us to? Because I know right now, and I don't know if you're able to speak about this or not, but I guess the FDA is looking for users to <clears throat> to to contact them and comment on how they're using their Dexcoms. Um, I believe you're referring to the panel hearing that uh, Dexcom has scheduled for February, or excuse me, for July 21st. Right. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, I'm really not able to comment much more on that at this time. I know they are soliciting public feedback. Well, I'll tell you what. You don't have to say anything. I will look into it, <clears> and I will add links and everything, and people can go along and, and get involved if they want to. Because because I guess that's the, the next step is that we're hoping – um, for FDA approval to dose off of the Dexcom. It's something we've all been talking about for a while. Kevin's been on here talking about it before, and, and it sounds like we're getting closer and closer to uh, to taking a shot at getting that approval. So that's that's really great news. Yeah, there's, there's really amazing changes going on with the diabetes technology. And, uh, you know, I made a reference earlier to the fact that I've been, I've been using CGM since the first systems, the old STS three days in 2006. And when I look at those systems, that we use then, and I compare them to the systems that I was I was giving my patients right before I left clinical practice, and that we're making now. The tech, the changes in the technology have simply been amazing. They're truly life changing for yeah. patients. No, oh, for sure. I I can go back to like the seven plus, and <clears> say that that was sort of a don't get to a low alarm for me. Like that's how it worked in my life. But now the technology is so spot on. That I, you know, I say it on here all the time, but my daughter's A1C has been between five nine and six two for almost three years. And that is absolutely phenomenal. Without the Dexcom, does not happen. It just, I can't do it. I mean, you know, I can, I can get by for a couple of hours during a warm up period or something like that. But if you start bringing life in and and meals and just the ability to to uh, accurately pre bolus insulin and get my insulin lined up with how the carbs are are working in our body, it's it's priceless. You know, there's 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 nothing I would, there's nothing in the world I would do to uh, not do to hold on to it. So, and I'm just excited that it's getting better and better. And, and I, I expect that we'll continue to to work on that. You know, we remain very committed to supporting our patient community at Dexcom. We, it really is all about the patient, and that's that's one of the reasons I'm really happy here. Yeah, I, I can't imagine uh, feeling otherwise. Then I didn't ask you in the beginning. Do you have type one or? No, I do not have not, diabetes. Not, is it in your life directly or just it's your work? Yeah, just my work. That's amazing. Do, do you have a moment to tell me what got you to 
get got you into that? Is it? Uh, yeah, actually. So I was uh, um, just kind of um, again just one of those things. I was actually working um, at uh, the Veterans Administration in Las Vegas in internal medicine, and I'd been a nurse practitioner for three or four years at that time. And uh, the chief of staff was an endocrinologist, and uh, I just got to know him over lunch <clears throat> over the course of a few months. And uh, he was trying to expand his endocrine services that they were offering at the Veterans Administration, and he asked me to join uh, his clinic. And it just took off from there. I, uh, it's something I, had a, I found I had a real affinity for. I enjoyed working in the endocrine space and particularly managing uh, diabetes. Uh, and you know this, and all you have to do is look back at the last 15 years in diabetes care and realize the incredible number of changes that have happened in diabetes, pharmaceuticals, and technology in that time. To recognize that this has been incredibly exciting time in diabetes, and uh, I, I, I fell in with him, and then a couple of years later, um, he had an opportunity to leave the Veterans Administration. I went with him, and I stayed in uh, I stayed in clinical practice for another 15 years in diabetes management. Well, I really appreciate you dedicating your your time and your life to it. That it's a there's no doubt that the the work you guys do over there is is benefiting my daughter and you know countless other people too. But I know in my in my life personally, it makes a it makes a really big difference. So I I know we only have you for a short time, so I want to thank you. But I do want to invite you if you ever want to come back and and do something like this a little long form uh, and talk about other research, I'd be thrilled to have you on. And I know people love it when we when we talk about stuff like this. Oh, I think it's, again, I think it's an amazing time. It's very exciting. I think we'll continue to see excite to see great and exciting improvements and try to improve the lives of people with type one diabetes. Um, have you been to Dexcom? Have you been out to the corporate offices? No, but I would love to come out. Oh. <laughs> no, I live on the I live on the East Coast. I haven't been on the West Coast in a while, actually, um, since my daughter was younger. But I yeah, that's one of those things that. You know that that sounds like a, a day at Disneyland to me. Actually, I would I would love to see how uh, how the sausage is made for the, the lack of a better term. And, uh, at, very good. At, at the very least, just to shake hands of people who I know are, are working so hard. So you know, sure. what do you what's your uh, what's what's your actual job to keep the lights on? <laughs> for, for for me, yeah, I've been oh, Thomas. I you're going to be mad at me. I've been a stay at home dad for 16 years. So oh, uh, I'm jealous. <laughs> My wife actually happens to work at, she's the director of product safety at Novo Nordisk. She's been at a, a number of pharma companies in her adult life. Um, and I stay home with my son, who's uh, 16, and my daughter, Arden, who's going to be 12 this summer. She's had type 1 since she was two years old. I honestly thought I'd be back at work uh, a long time ago, but the, the way we manage her diabetes is um, it, it's a little different than other people. So she doesn't go to the nurse while she's at school. We use the share function and text messaging, and we just do things like she's here. She hasn't been to the nurse since she, uh, I think, the last day of second grade, and she's about to finish sixth grade right now. So, so let me pick your brain for a minute as a regular user. If you had to improve share, you know, you've already said you'd like to be able to change the time settings for alarms. What else would you like to change? Okay. Um, I would like to be able to, to set different alarms and different thresholds. I would just like things in general to be more customizable. Like if I wanted to know that I was uh, there was no more data in nine minutes, I don't want to wait thirty. If I don't want to wait, I want I just would want the device to be more customizable in general. Also, when her CGM needs to be calibrated, I don't find that out on my end, and she's eleven. So sometimes she'll tell me nine hours later, "Oh yeah, I did see that that had to happen," or you know, I it did say that it was going to shut off in two hours. I forgot to tell you, but there's a lot that she's seeing on her end that I don't see on my end. As a caregiver, would be really valuable. 
That's good feedback. Thank you. And it doesn't wake me up anymore, Thomas. It's just, I've gotten accustomed to it. And so, um, you know, yesterday I was looking at something yesterday. It was this little, I don't even remember where it was. Maybe it was on Amazon or Zon or something, but it was this little Bluetooth alarm clock that was no bigger than like two inches square. And it was advertised as like, oh, it hooks up to your phone to make your phone louder for when you're traveling. And I thought, boy, something like that would be a big deal for me. You know, I, I, I genuinely need the Dexcom alarm to shake my bed, not just to, uh, not just to beep it, it. You just get used to it too quickly. And that's something I know happens to a lot of people. You know, alarm fatigue is, um, most of the interesting papers on alarm fatigue are actually written by, if you ever looked at this, this is something that we've, that I've actually looked at myself is, um, most of them are written by like the fire alert guys, by the fire alarm people. And the preventing alarm fatigue is really hard. Um, and I, the, the, the comparative I always get is if you've ever worked in the hospital and you've ever been in ICU, you know there's this constant cacophony of alerts and alarms, and you just tune them out yeah. because they don't mean anything. Right. And that is, is really such a challenge that when you design alerts and alarms, you must make them mean something or they just become background noise. Yeah, and the, and, and the issue too is that you that all of your different alarms, uh, the tone and intensity of them tells me a lot before I actually look at a screen. So you can't. I would assume just randomizing them wouldn't work. But at the same time, that's what occurs to me. If it just randomized itself, maybe just it changing would help me. But then you couldn't do that. I mean, I mean, you know what I mean. Like, there's a certain intensity to three, you know, to two arrows down than there is to diagonal down, and 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 that sort of that sort of feeling. And I don't know how you. I genuinely, I, I hope you guys are thinking about it because it really is, you know, last night there's a good example. My daughter must have rolled over and laid on her sensor for a good hour and a half. And when I woke up in the morning, I saw no data alarms a number of times that I have no recollection of overnight. Now she was fine, but you know, um, it, they did not wake me up and she's never going to wake up. She's, I, I have a video she won't let me share online of me just shaking her bed and calling her name and <laughs> flopping her limbs around and nothing wakes her up. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, listen, stop talking to me, get on it, figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your, uh, appreciate your time, Scott. And, uh, you know, if you want to talk again and, uh, just let me know. I will reach something. out cause this, this would be great to do some more. So thank you very, very much. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Thomas, have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed getting sort of an inside look at what's going on at ADA this year. I thought it was really interesting. I thought Thomas was great to talk to, so much so that I've already reached out and tried to set something up to have him back on the podcast soon. This just seems like a good place to tell you that I appreciate very much that you're listening to the podcast and uh, that you're downloading it and subscribing. And so thank you. Um, Juicebox podcast is available on Google Play for you Android folks who may still be listening online, not realizing that Google Play is now servicing podcasts on iTunes and juiceboxpodcast.com. I genuinely appreciate that you're listening. Thanks so much.